You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. And so you'll notice the report is really centered around those issues, even though it's supposed to address these other issues, and it does tangentially, but it's really getting at the desire issue that has um, important implications, not just for sexuality, but also for all of life and all of our desires. Um, and so we, we're really hitting that today, um, this issue of uh, sin and desire and concupiscence. It's really the, one of the main core issues that the report addressed. And so in the, in the future, we're going to hit um, some other issues, uh, sanctification, the use of language, how we describe ourselves, repentance, hope, a number of these other topics we'll get to. But then after going through the report, I hope to and plan to circle back uh, to talk about nature, gender, sexuality, marriage, some of these things and, and that we really touched on very briefly last time. And I want to better root us in nature and creation as we think about uh, sexuality. Um, that was not the, the, the thrust of the report, so I want to augment it with some other matters and material. So um, any comments, questions before we j- launch in today? Did I pray? Let's pray. We need the Lord's help. Lord, we come to you thanking you for this day. We commit our day to you and ask that you would indeed bless us as we study your word and seek to understand uh, sin and understand our own hearts. We pray that you would give us clarity, that Christ would be honored and glorified, and that your spirit would be at work purifying us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, if you have uh, papers, we're going to start there. I'm going to put this in the back in case we have latecomers who need this. Here, why don't you grab our latecomers and hand them to them. Um, So we're starting with statement three today. So I'll just begin, and we'll work through it. Original sin. We affirm that from the sin of our first parents, we have received an inherited guilt and an inherited depravity. Now, this is what we call original sin. We have received an inherited guilt and depravity. Now, most people will say, yes, we've inherited a a, a depravity. We're depraved. But actually, um, the teaching of the Bible, we believe, says it's not just the depravity we've inherited, but we've actually inherited guilt. We are guilty of Adam's sin because Adam represented us. And so when we are conceived, when we first become a person, and our mother's womb, we are guilty. We are depraved as well and corrupted, but we are guilty. I want to look at two, these two passages here, Romans 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. First look at Romans 5. Romans 5, uh, 12 through 19. I'm not going to read all of it. We're just going to look at the first uh, verse or two. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, So I'm going to stop there. Sin came into the world through one man. So the one man is Adam, and it's now sin that has entered the world, and then death through sin, and death spread to all men. And it says, because all sin is really getting at um, evidenced by all sinning. 
is that what we sin has spread to all of us. It's through Adam. It's through our representative. And then it goes to speak, to parallel that with Christ and says, you're saved though through one man. One man has given life. And in the same way that we're imputed the righteousness of Christ to be saved, we have been given the righteousness or the, the sin of Adam at birth. And so this, it puts these things in parallel here in this whole passage. Again, we're not going to read it all. But there's, there's Adam who gives us sin, not just corruption, but gives us the guilt of sin. And then Christ gives us the forgiveness of sins. They're both, it's, it, the question is, who is your representative? Is it Adam or is it Christ? And so born, we are born in sin. And just to back this up, uh, flip over to Ephesians Galatians and then Ephesians and chapter one or chapter two, verses one through three. It's getting at this same idea. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So again, before Christ, you were dead. You're dead in trespasses and sins. Then he says in verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature. Now, this is by nature, now a fallen nature. This isn't speaking of creation prior, but now by nature, because Adam is a representative, we are children of wrath. We are under a curse because of Adam's sin. So we are under the guilt or under the, the um, we have the, the guilt of Adam's sin and we also have a corrupted nature that we are walking out from the moment of conception. So that is original sin. That's our standard teaching of original sin. Um, we'll pause there and then we'll keep, keep moving forward. Any questions or comments there? Yeah, that's right. Then, um, if, if, you, if, if it was true that we were all kind of like blank slates and then we all sin, Scripture never talks about mm-hmm. that. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, and in fact, we see the evidence going the other way. But you're right. You would think, um, say, okay, these kids are pure until age five when they can actually consciously sin. Scripture never says that. Uh, never speaks that way. So that's a really, really good point. So what happens with these little kids all running around here who have not been faithful yet? Are they covered by the covenant of the church? Yeah. So great question. Um, children who are members of the covenant community, they haven't yet professed their faith, either publicly or even to their parents or privately, right? Um, do, if they haven't expressed faith, are they, um, are they saved, right, is the question. And the answer is, um, we don't know, but no, apart from faith in Christ, so without faith in Christ, there is no salvation. And so what being members of the covenant community, it doesn't make you regenerate. It doesn't save you being a part of the covenant community. What it does is it draws you, it shows you Christ. You have more profound, and in a profound way, you behold Christ, you see Christ, and you're called to have faith in him. Um, and now, I don't, want to, I don't want to go into the issue today of, okay, those who are too young, um, those who die in infancy, those kinds of things. The, co- the confession says, elect infants dying in their infancy are saved. So if they're children who die before understanding the gospel or before they can comprehend, those who are elect are saved by the, 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 the wonderful grace of God that we don't understand. 
but it says elect infants. And who are the elect infants? And that's a lot of, that's a question. Um, but I think they're exactly right. Elect infants are saved by Christ and not by anything else. Not because they're pure, not because they don't need forgiveness of sin or cleansing. They're saved by Christ. So um, I'm going to pull back from that one. There's a lot there. Um, that's a, a good topic, though, for discussion. I'm happy to do that at another time. So guilt and corruption of sin. So next sentence, from this original corruption, which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable, proceed all actual transgressions. So when we say actual transgressions, we're saying something, a sin that somebody commits. Every sin we commit comes from that original guilt and corruption that we inherit. We have a sin nature, and from that nature, we walk, our, walk out our sin. That's where all actual transgressions come from. Uh, next sentence, all the outworkings of our corrupted nature. A corruption which remains in part even after regeneration are truly and properly called sin. So corrupted nature, anything that proceeds from that corrupted nature is sin. And even though you're regenerate, it doesn't mean you are completely restored and you have a non-sinful nature any longer. We still have that, that uh, brokenness of sin. We have the depravity in us and we still walk in that. There's an outworking of that in our lives, even though we're called to put it to death, but it still remains in part. Corruption remains in part even after we come to Christ. These things are truly and properly called sin. The confession says mo all motions of original sin are sin. That's the way, uh, the language of the, the confession. And they update that language a little bit here. But I like that word motions. Any motion that comes out of that original sin is sin and needs to be repented of and put to death. Every sin, so moving on, every sin original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. Original sin in and of itself condemns us. We are guilty for that original sin. And our actual sin as well condemns us. We, they are both um, condemning us to eternal judgment. And then we move on to, we must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins particularly. That is, we ought to grieve for our sin, hate our sin, turn from our sin unto God, and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commands. So the, this question is, what is our obligation in light of our sin? And one is to repent, to turn from our sin unto God, to walk in newness of life, and we're called to obey. That is the calling of the Christian is to obey to repent and obey. That is our obligation in light of original sin. Um, comments, questions? Okay, great. Keep moving. Um, the next paragraph, so remember these are somewhat like affirmations, denials. The second paragraph is a denial. Nevertheless, God does not wish for, for believers to live in perpetual misery for their sins, each of which are pardoned and mortified in Christ. So now in Christ, are we to constantly keep ashes upon our head and be miserable all the time and say, woe is me, I'm terrible, I'm awful? No, that's not the Christian life. We look at our sins now in light of Christ, in light of the fact that, that Paul calls us saints. Christians are called saints. Even though we continue to sin, fundamentally, you are now a saint. Now, it doesn't mean we don't repent of our sin. We don't seek to put it to death. We don't walk in obedience. Absolutely all of that. We grieve and we hate our sin. Absolutely. But I love this. Our pattern of life is not perpetual misery. 
because our sin is pardoned and it's mortified. It's put to death in Christ. By the Spirit of Christ, continuing on, we are able to make spiritual progress and to do good works. Not perfectly, but truly. So the Christian is able to do good works. Again, not, not perfectly. We still have uh, mixed motives, but Lord willing, the, the bad motives are, are becoming less and less. And our good motives of loving our neighbor is growing more and more in us. But, so we can truly do good works, even if it's not perfectly. Even our imperfect works are made acceptable through Christ, and God is pleased to accept and reward them as pleasing in his sight. So you see what, what we're saying here in this, this first uh, this statement number three. So on the one hand, original sin, guilt and corruption, everything that comes out of original sin is sin, and you are responsible for it. But at the same time, in Christ, we can walk in newness of life, and we don't have to heap the, the uh, guilt on our head every day, every moment. We can have confidence in Christ that our sins are forgiven. So these two things at the same time, original sin, we continue, in orig- we continue in sin, but yet we have Christ. We're called to obey and to walk in newness of life and to do good works. All right, original sin. We all good? Great. All right, we're going to the next level now. Statement four is desire. We're, we're, we're diving deeper into this idea a little bit more, and this is where maybe it becomes a little bit more um, complicated. We affirm not only that our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, right? So this is what we just said. Our inclination towards sin is because of the fall, is because of original sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful, right? So those desires that result from original sin are sinful. I want to read these two, uh, these two passages from 1 Peter. So you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 if you have a Bible. For the back end of your New Testament. Hebrews, James, and then Peter. All right, Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, I'll read verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's what it speaks, that's how it's speaking of unbelievers and their desires. Passions of former ignorance ignorance, of your ignorance, of when you did not know Christ, the passions that result from being uh, depraved in sin, your original sin. And then uh, let's hop over to chapter 2, verse 11. It's saying a very similar thing. Uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh here is speaking of those passions, those desires that arise out of our sinful nature. So he's saying, abstain from them. Do not allow those passions to rule over you. These passions are themselves evil, and they are to be rejected, and we are to run from them. And uh, this next statement is really good in, um, in the report. The desire for an illicit end, skip this parenthetical here, is itself an illicit desire. The desire for an illicit end is itself an illicit desire. So if I desire something sinful, that desire is sinful. You see what, see what it's getting at there? If I desire something sinful, my desire itself is sinful. Now let's look at the examples it uses here. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire disconnected from the context of biblical marriage is itself an illicit desire. 
a sexual desire towards someone who is not your spouse is an illicit desire. It is a sinful desire. And so this is where they specifically name sexual desire for people of the same sex. And we'll get to the the nevertheless in a moment, which I think is, is very helpful and pastorally good here. But that desire in and of itself is sinful. A sexual desire for somebody of the same sex is sinful. Whether you are coddling that desire, whether you're trying to, to, to develop that desire, whether it's coming on its own and you don't, you don't want it at all, the fact that it is there is itself sinful. It is against nature, our original nature, but it is now congruent with our sinful nature. It is an outworking of the fallenness of humankind. So that is, this is a very, very important sentence. The desire for an illicit end is itself an illicit desire. And this isn't just for sexuality. Uh, this is in all parts of life, in everything. A desire for power, a desire to, 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 um, to, to silence other people, a desire to dehumanize others in whatever realm. That is itself a sinful desire, and it must be uh, repented of. Yeah. That's exactly right. This is one of the key points that was at issue and the question of the day that this whole report was about. Um, And the question is, is same-sex attraction inherently sinful or is it just something that happens upon people and what they do with it can be sinful? Um, What they're saying is, no, it's sinful in and of itself. Now, we're not condemning those people to hell who have those desires. That's not where we're going to get there. That's not what we're saying. But we're we're recognizing at the root that desire is sinful and does not bring honor to God. It is not what we were meant to do and how we were meant to be. It is contrary to the purposes of God. And so that desire is sinful. Does this go with the concupiscence? Yes, concupiscence. That's right. That's right. So that's going to be like the next level down, uh, getting at that, which is getting the same things with different categories. Right. Can you speak to even if there's a genetic predisposition to this? Right. Yeah. I mean, even if they say there's the gene, and I listen to the same thing you listen to, um, even if even if they find the the gay gene, which they're actually debunking and saying there there's no evidence of that any longer. Um, not there was evidence. The theory of that is not withholding scrutiny. But even if there was like this is the one gene, and if it turns, you're now same-sex attracted. Um, even if that was the case, what we would say is that's a result of the fall. Like even if that's a result of uh, the physical corruption of our nature, even to the level of DNA that we're evidencing. This is not what we were created for. We were created male and female. This gets back to last time, and uh, and and matters. I hope to go through more detail in the future. We were created male and female for the purposes of filling and subduing the earth, male and female for the purposes of marriage and procreating and filling the earth. So this is contrary to that order. Um, so even if there is a, a gay gene, uh, it doesn't um, uh, say it's not sin and it doesn't alleviate anybody of their responsibility to honor God and to obey him. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. We each have our own battles to fight. 
Exactly. That's right. That's right. Very good. Let's, uh, let's keep walking through this. Um, therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. This was that you know, $10,000 line that came out of this report. Um, same-sex attraction, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. Even if it comes upon you, as I'll say in a moment, even if it's something you don't desire, you're not um, working to, to cultivate yourself, the attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin, must be repented of and put to death. We can't let um, even a, a, a unintentional same-sex attraction, an erotic sexual attraction, we cannot let that just be there it has to be put to death. In the same way, right, if there's attraction for somebody of the same sex who's not your spouse, that needs to be put to death as well. So these things, this works in both directions. But the, the key is that it is original sin, that corruption of our nature being manifest. And that needs to be put to death, repented of and put to death. Let's go to this nevertheless statement. Nevertheless, we must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires, and even at times egregious sinful behavior, repentant, justified, and adopted believers are free from condemnation through the imputed righteousness of Christ. What I was thinking was going to be the nevertheless statement is in the concupiscence nevertheless statement. We'll get there. Um, nevertheless, experiencing these desires is not saying you are not a Christian. It is not a disqualifying sin. It is not a sin that says you are not a Christian. We all wrestle with various sins uh, as a result of the corruption of our nature. Some it's this sin. Some it's other sin or different kinds of sin. And if you are in Christ, if you're looking to him, if you're justified, adopted, you are saved. You can know for certain your sins are forgiven. This sin included. And what a joy that is. We are able to please God now that we are and we are adopted, and the Spirit enables us to walk in newness of life. So this is not, we say this is sin strongly, but we don't say it's a disqualifying sin. In the same way, no sin is disqualifying for those who are looking to Christ and turning from their sin. All right, anything else? Yes. Yeah, no, that's great. And that what's, what's interesting, this, this does not do that, actually. So I'm glad you brought that up. This report does not do that because it wasn't on the radar in the same way it is now. Um, and so, again, that's where I think a weakness, it addresses transgenderism in a, um, uh, what's that? I mean, it still does. The desire to that. That's right. It, do, it doesn't explicitly say it, but yeah, it, it addresses it more tangentially. It doesn't hit it, the, the, hit it on the head in the way, let's do it right now. So this does apply to, um, to transgender issues, and that desire to not be the sex that you are is a sinful desire, right? The, the physical, we are made physical beings, physical and a body and soul, both um, both. Um, yeah, both body and soul, we have these two parts, and God created us physically to be a sex, a gender. And a desire to not be that is a rejection of God's purposes for you. And so this desire, now, there are legitimate 
um, because of our fallenness, like there's legitimate confusion about this. But even that confusion is sinful. But again, it's not the, the unpardonable sin, right? But we do want to grow. If, if that is a, a, um, a, a difficulty, a trial that you are undergoing, we want to grow to embody and to um, enjoy the physical body God has given you and to not to reject it not to reject the sex that you have been made to be. And so you're exactly right. This applies the same way. My desire to be a woman is a sinful desire. A male desiring to be a woman is a sinful desire. I'm saying this all hypothetically, right? But I say that, right? This is a struggle, no doubt, of people in this room, right? And my, my, my statement to you is, one, let's call it out a sin as it is. But at the same time, you're in Christ. Same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, um, all of these matters are in the body of Christ. And so we want to be compassionate and listen and care, but yet we're called to reject it and, and we're called to live as God calls us in accordance with our gender, in accordance with the purposes of sexuality in nature. So thank you. Thank you for, for bringing that out. Yeah. Right, right. And I think often the church has a deep reaction to condemnation when in a lot of cases, like I think from a pastoral standpoint, these people need very attention. Yes, um, great. Care great. Yeah, great question. So you're, you're asking the application question. Okay, so what now uh, in the world? How do we do this? How do we live as Christians in a world that hates what we're saying? This is hate speech. Um, so two things. One, on the individual level, you're exactly right. Compassion, compassion, compassion. Show them Christ. Point them to Christ. Our, our number one goal when we're, when we're dealing with an individual is not to fix their sexuality. It's to show them Christ, and in Christ, they are renewed in newness of life, and then we call them to obedience in Christ. Um, Ernie, yeah. Right, I'm about to get there, yeah. So one level, individual, that compassion. This is a person, this is not a political target. It's a person. But second, right, we're dealing on a big picture, like uh, ideological level, where this is being pushed as a good thing ideologically, as, a, as something that, is, that must be taught to children, the, the transgender agenda particularly right now, must be taught to children. If you're not, you're abusing children, Children who, uh, some states are taking children out of homes where parents refuse to allow their children to transgender according to their own desires. Right, what do we do? I think on that level, we have to be very strong and push against that. I do think there is a place, Christians in the public sphere need to say, this is not good. Not just because the Bible says so, I think the Bible does say so, but this is damaging to children. You are, this is, this is genital mutilation of children. Um, when you're giving um, these kinds of, um, hormones to children. Um, it is damaging them for the rest of their lives. This is harmful. This is bad. This is evil. So we need to argue this is not good for society. This is destroying the next generation. We're harming them in ways we cannot even comprehend. So I think our job in the public sphere, we need to be saying these things. Now, to the various degree, how we're saying that, what we're doing, I think that's left up to our own individual places in life, um, what our strengths are, what the giftedness we have. Some should be more on the front lines of politically doing this. Others should be, should all be voting in various ways, uh, thinking about these things. So um, not to say we're all to, called to do the exact same thing publicly, but I think this is something that we need to take very seriously in our day. All right, one, two, and then three. 
see themselves as being Christian, but think they have to be tolerant mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and judge not, lest you be judged. Right, and right. Excuse how they then interact mm-hmm. almost to the point of affirming right. right. And that's very hard. And that's where we're getting into the very nitty gritty of how do you walk with somebody through this? If it's your child, um, if it's a non-believer, if it's a believer, right? The very, every, we're going to do it differently based on the relationship we're in. And we have to be careful, right? It is a temptation for some of us to come in with uh, guns blazing and to say, you're wrong, 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 you're terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, It's a temptation for others of us to come in and want to coddle and want to be, you know, we need to, I think, understand maybe our own side we might fall on and be aware of that as we try to walk alongside people in love. So I don't know if I can give a, a, a clear answer on that. But, but, third for people, right? Not people that are struggling with it, not people that are pushing the ideology, but the people that are swept up in it, especially yeah. Christians that are swept yes. up in it. How do you speak to Christians that are swept up in this? Right, right. And I, I hope that... Um, it's not happening today. But again, I want to come to grounding this in nature, grounding this in what God made us to be. I think that's really going to win the day. We can say the Bible says it, but they're not going to see it um, in the words that they're looking for. And so we have to really go underneath to say, what does it mean to be human? That's really the fight today. What does it mean to be human? And what is sexuality? And hopefully, you know, I hope we can be addressing that because I think that's where we have to go. All right, Rob, uh, and Mary Alice. I mean, you're saying we, we, we Edison know which parts were the church, which parts yeah. were individuals. That's right, yeah. No, I'm, I'm speaking very sloppily there. I'm saying we generally think Christians in general, um, not necessarily the, the church as the church, but we Christians, um, usually what I'm saying, but push back if you think that's wrong. Uh, Mary Alice? Yes, whenever you have a situation with any visible sin, um, sexual If you have a person who has these desires, when you acknowledge that they are sinful, but you continue to pursue them and engage in activities which are way outside the scope, what's the church supposed to do? Yeah. We all have sin. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that's where if the sin is at the where unrepentance, they come in drunk every Sunday morning and say, ah, I just like to have a good time Saturday. You can't tell me what to do on Saturday night. Well, okay, that's an unrepentant attitude. Um, and the same way, if somebody's falling in the sin and pro- progressing up the ladder of, of heinousness of, that this can lead to, and they're unrepentant, well, clearly that's a call for the church to be involved, and there's a disciplinary process for that when you're in unrepentant sin. Now, if somebody is repentant, um, we have to, we, we don't, um, we don't, we, we don't take them away from the Lord's Supper. Uh, we don't excommunicate those who are repentant. Um, but it does require a lot of um, care, um, walking alongside of them, and we do this as friends, accountability, um, but also there's a role for leadership in the church to do some of those things. Um, 
So, um, yeah, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. We're, we're part of the body of Christ and together building one another up in love. But to your point, yes, if, if it's unrepentant, then there's a formal process for discipline with that. If it is repentant, then we're, we're all, like you said, we're all in sin. Now, if it's a level of heinousness, especially if it's public or something like that, there may need to be an admonition um, and let the whole church and the world know this is not acceptable. They're repentant, praise God, but this is not acceptable. Um, but if it's, if it's more of a private struggle, there's a lot of walking with them and encouraging them in Christ and rooting them in their union with Christ and their identity in Christ above all. Yeah, Mark. The number one issue destroying the evangelical church, possibly, I don't know. I'm no sociologist or I'm not sure. But um, it's amazing how much I listen to, you know, broadly evangelical podcasts or read articles. And the assumption is your desires are just neutral and what you do with them is what matters. And, and I hear this all the time in evangelical circles. So you're right. I think this is a, a, a point of disagreement that we do have with broadly evangelical circles um, because I think the Bible does better reflections than that. Our desires result from sin and our desires then for sinful things are sin. And so we need to repent of them. So that, yes, thank you for mentioning that. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I'm sorry. Um, the question was, is this the, the biggest issue with the evangelical church today? Was that... Destroying. This is destroying the evangelical church today. Is this the issue destroying the evangelical church today? Um, yes, that's right. Same-sex attraction, those things. Mm-hmm. Is, is that destroying the church today? And my response is, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's one of them. I'm not a student of the broadly evangelical church, so I can't, I can't say. Uh, you can see, see certain instances where, where it is in certain places. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you listen to the DeYoung interview with her? Yeah, I haven't listened to that one yet, but good, good. Um, let's go to concupiscence with the few minutes we have. Um, so concupiscence, we'll see, this is a Roman Catholic doctrine that really has infiltrated the evangelical church. Um, so there's a lot of footnotes here. You can chase those down later. I'm not going to deal with them here. But we'll see, we'll, the state, this does a very good job stating the Roman Catholic view. We affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. So impure thoughts, desires, prior to a conscious act of the will, it is sin. That is sin. Um, and next sentence, we reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence, whereby disordered desires that affect us due to the fall do not become sin without a consenting act of the will. So that's the Roman Catholic statement. These disordered desires are not sin until it becomes a consenting act of the will. If, if a desire arises in you that you did not consent to, it is not sin. Again, this is the Roman Catholic view, and this has now become the standard evangelical view, I believe. 
and what I've, what I've heard. Um, and this is the doctrine of concupiscence. Concupiscence, this kind of, uh, this, this pre, um, what's the language? Pre-conscious act or pre-conscious desires are not sinful. And it's rejecting this. We reject this idea. These desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful. So again, this is kind of what we were saying before. Now, putting in the context of this Roman Catholic doctrine, these pre-conscious desires are sinful. And if you read a footnote, you'll see actually John Calvin is taking uh, Augustine to task because Augustine taught the doctrine of concupiscence. And Calvin's saying, no, we love Augustine, but you're wrong here. Um, so uh, we'll stop there. It's basically what we've been talking about before, but pause for questions, um, comments on, on this. Yeah, Jim. This is not a good time to point out. We're not called to take some thoughts captive. That's great. Very good. Very good. Yes. Yeah. All those things work together. All those are accountable. Right. And, and even like the ones, the thoughts that arise that we didn't intend to arise, even those we take captive, right? I think that's your point, right? It's understandable to many that the idea of some sort of like spontaneous sin is repulsive and very offensive. Right. But right. that is how we operate. Right. It is, yeah. It's equally our own will and just what's there. That's right. And that's why they spent that time dealing with original sin, right. saying we are corrupted in our nature and our nature bubbles up. The sinful nature bubbles up in us and causes these things. And it is sin. It's very much sin. Say something. I just said, what do we do with it? Yeah. We're, we're born into sin. Right. We're all afraid. That's right. Now, when it becomes revealed to us, when we pray, yeah. can be revealed to mm-hmm. us. What's our response? Yeah. And, and that's where I think we come back to the beginning and our response is to repent of it and to turn from it and to seek to renew our minds and our hearts, our desires after Christ. And so that we no longer have those desires any longer, that they don't come unconsciously bubbling up to the surface. Rob, were you going to say something else? No, I get you. Okay. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's, it's absolutely. Amen. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Uh, I really appreciated uh, Scott Wright's threefold plan to reveal us about these things. Um, you, uh, fight, it's, it's, it's a battle. You fight, you fight the sin. Two, practice self control in all things. Generally, have self control. Mm-hmm. You be, be going everywhere. And third, cherish Christ. Yeah. Have our desire before him. That's right. And those three things are great <coughs> bulwarks against concubinism. That's right. And, and one thing when I'm talking with guys who are struggling with pornography, one of the first things I'll do is say, hey, let's read some really good theology. Right? It's, so it's, it's not necessarily, yes, we're going to talk about those issues and this accountability and there's other things. But we need to have the mind of Christ. We need to think of God in all of his glory and his majesty. That's what is changing us. It's not the, I'm going to do harder or I'm going to work harder. I'm not going to do it again. Okay, we need to set ourselves to fight against. Absolutely. But we're not going to win by just merely fighting the war. We, need to, we will win by being conformed to the image of Christ, by glorifying and honoring and having our minds transformed after his image. Jason, I think both with this report and just in general, you just gave a great 44-minute um, advertisement for catechesis. 
tying together all the scripture that goes into this. Book. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, whether it's for us in the larger catechism, or the smaller catechism of children, or even a children's catechism, a lot of these questions were answered in here. That's true. In a broad sense, are already answered. Yeah. Any question yeah. about what God can do doesn't say God can do all things. It says He can do this whole book. Yeah. And yeah. Any question about what we are aiming for is we're aiming to be more like God. Mm. And when we ask ourselves about our sin, well, are our desires sin? Well, the catechism will tell us we're corrupt in every fiber of our being. Yeah. And so if we yeah. look at something like transgenderism, where it's emerged rather quickly since this report was started, we don't have to address every individual thing. Right. That's right. We do equip ourselves, point it at what's true, what's worthy, what's mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. and compare everything against that. Yes. If we're compared in, if we're comparing against that, it will either be entirely in agreement with that, or we will know that there's some yeah. flaw. Yeah, yeah, very good. That's better than chasing every little thing. Right, every that's right. Times article is, what's true, what's right, aim at that, if it's not that. Yeah. That's right. And, and I think that's where this report didn't come back asking to change our confessional documents. It's actually just using scripture and our confessional documents to address this issue. That's there, um, but they're explicitly addressing it. I want to get to this last paragraph quickly. Um, I think there's a few important points I want to make in our uh, now 44 minutes. It was 42 minutes when you said that. Now it's 44 minutes. Nevertheless, we recognize that many persons who experience same-sex attraction describe their desires as arising in them unbidden and unwanted. Yes, okay, people say that this is what's happening, and, and we're going to trust them, right? We're not challenging that. It does happen where these desires come unbidden and unwanted. We also recognize that the presence of same-sex attraction is often owing to many factors, which always include our own sin nature and may include being sinned against in the past, right? So there's things that have happened to you, sin against you in the past that often will shape these desires and just help in the disordering process of our desires. It's recognizing that. It's our own sin. We've also been sinned against. As with any sinful pattern or propensity, which may include disordered desires, extramarital lust, pornographic addictions, and all abusive sexual behavior. So as with any sinful pattern or propensity, the actions of others, though never finally determinative, can be significant and influential. This should move us to compassion and understanding. Moreover, it is true for all of us that sin can be both unchosen bondage and idolatrous rebellion at the same time. We all experience sin at times as a kind of voluntary servitude. So much there, packed in there. We won't have time to, uh, to address it right now. But the point is, even if it's coming unbidden, unwanted, even if somebody sinned against you in the past that, uh, that has further disordered you, it's still sin. And we want to be, we want to be, um, says compassionate. We want to be understanding. We want to listen. And we want to understand these sinful actions against you have affected you deeply. But Christ restores all things. And the brokenness you experience now may never be undone completely in this life. But we have a great, great hope that as, as Rob said earlier, there will be that day when we will experience no disordered desire ever again, when we are fully renewed and fully made into the likeness of Christ. I'm gonna stop there, we're gonna pray, we're gonna go worship. Lord, we thank you that you are at work in us and I pray that you would assist us, help us with boldness to speak the truth in love and give us compassion with those who are struggling and give us a clarity of the gospel 
for a world that is dying. Help us, Father, in our own lives to become more pure in our desires. May we root out the, the, the sin and the disordered desires that we all continue in. And I pray that you would purify us and ready, for, ready us for the day of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.